This is a Federal News Network podcast. If the State Department stands for human rights and dignity around the world, then my next guest stands at the center of the State Department. For his career seeking to defend human rights and protect refugees, he's a finalist in this year's Service to America medals. The Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor, Scott Busby, joins me now. Mr. Busby, good to have you on. Great to be with you, Tom. And let me ask you first about the Bureau, DRL, Democracy, Human Rights and Labor, in some sense isn't all of the State Department that. So tell us about what that Bureau does in particular. Yes, our Bureau's job is to try to promote and ensure that there's adequate attention to democracy, human rights, and labor issues in our foreign policy. As you know, and people around the world know, there are lots of non-democratic governments out there in the world that we have to deal with, and there are lots of other equities that we often have in those relationships. So our job is to try to ensure that attention to the issues of democracy, human rights, and labor are not lost in those conversations with other governments. And so how does that happen? What's the process? There are ambassadors in all of those countries, and they talk with the leadership there, and we have an ambassador to the United Nations and so on. How do your thoughts get into those conversations? So we are engaging with our ambassadors uh, around the world and with the embassies and the people here in Washington who support those ambassadors. Part of our conversations are internal ones, but then we ourselves have direct engagement with the governments of concern as well as individuals, officials, both in those governments and in international organizations, advocating to them that they pay attention to democracy, human rights, and labor issues. And from the citation for your SAMI's nomination, it looks like you personally have done more than simply advocate, but have also taken action to ensure that refugees are protected or that some change or protection is affected in other countries. Tell us more about that. Yes, well, there are a variety of ways in which we try to elevate attention to human rights, to get other governments to behave better when it comes to human rights. Some of those things are carrots. We offer other governments assistance programs, better trade arrangements, meetings with senior U.S. government officials, uh, things of that nature to encourage better behavior. But we also have sticks. Those include economic sanctions, visa restrictions, withholding of assistance in cases where governments aren't respecting human rights. So we try to balance out these carrots and sticks in our discussions with these governments to get them to do better on human rights. And when people think about human rights and the lack of dignity and freedom, I think China probably comes to mind nowadays, certainly Russia, North Korea. You spent a lot of time focusing on South America in your career, even outside of the State Department. And I remember in the 70s and 80s, the abusive governments of South America were the top of everyone's mind. Tell us more about South America and where it stands today and in your special interest there. Tom, you and I sound like we're of the same generation as I was growing up and going to college and to graduate school. The civil wars in Central America were a predominant concern here in the United States and were a special interest of mine. I had spent six months in Guatemala when I was an undergraduate, and that experience really moved me compelled me to get more engaged. And so I worked with individuals from Central America fleeing the civil wars of the 1980s, helping them to get asylum here in the United States. And that led to my interest in working on policies that could improve 
the human rights of individuals from those countries. And would you say there's been some progress or maybe it's a mixed bag, I guess, with respect to South America? Certainly in South America, in countries like Argentina, Chile, Peru, there's been dramatic improvement in human rights. Indeed, we now have democratic governments in those places where we once had dictatorships, at least in Argentina and Chile. In Central America, it's more of a mixed bag. We no longer have the civil wars of the 1980s where there were massive human rights violations, but we still have significant human rights violations in countries like Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And part of what our job within the State Department is to try to address those violations. We're speaking with Scott Busby. He's the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And in some cases, there are tools that you can use for specific instances, such as the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the Global Magnitsky Act, which didn't exist when your career started. Has that been helpful? And what are some of the tools that have been helpful in this pursuit? Yes, no question that the Global Magnitsky Act has been a huge asset. It gives us the ability to economically sanction a human rights violator or abuser from any place in the world. That authority did not exist prior to Global Magnitsky, so that's a big new asset. But we also have new visa restrictions, some of which we've developed on our own, some of which have been provided to us by the Congress. And believe it or not, officials and their families from these countries, even if they are repressive countries, they want the ability to come to the United States. They want the ability to send their children to the United States to go to school. And so imposing visa restrictions on individuals engaged in human rights abuses also is a major deterrent to bad behavior around the world when it comes to human rights. And in recent years, of course, the sensitivities to the LGBTQ folks has increased, certainly in the United States. But when you look around the world, what happens to those people elsewhere really makes the United States pale in comparison. And that's become a a hot button for you. Yes. No, that's a major issue. I would say in the last decade or so, this has become one of the cutting edge human rights issues around the world. And we now have a special envoy dedicated to working on those issues, Jessica Stern. But prior to her arrival, I effectively played that role in the last administration and tried to address those issues in a wide array of countries, both then and prior to that. And you've seen a lot of secretaries of state come and go. You've seen a lot of political leadership come and go, a lot of administrations come and go. As a career State Department person, have you felt like you were able to do your job regardless of what the political overhead was at a given moment? Yes, I do feel like we've had that ability. First of all, these values are deeply entrenched in the American psyche, if you will. The American people, our own country was founded on these sorts of values. So they are values that are shared across political parties. And indeed, the Congress, in a bipartisan way, has been hugely supportive of our bureau and our work, as have the political leadership in both political parties. So DRL and myself, personally, uh, we've been able to do a lot of our work regardless of the party in power. And what made you choose a public service career early on? How'd you get into all of this? Well, as I say, I was working with Central American refugees. I wanted to help people, basically, improve people's lives, try to 
deter and bring to an end uh, human rights abuses. And one thing led to another and I was in government and I came to realize that one can have a huge impact being inside government. As I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, I was quite critical of US government and US government policies, but then I came to see that there's lots of ability to influence things from within US government. And I guess that led to my, you know, developing a career inside the government, much to my own surprise, I should say. Scott Busby is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor, and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who is the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village. That was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that 
that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do, where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called Labor and Employee Relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, Um, you know, from historical to current, uh, current times. I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. (coughs) Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. 
It's in our nature. A financial plan isn't just about money. It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin.